0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is George Selgin. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all here today on behalf of Cato and our center to uh, this uh, fine event with a distinguished panel on reforming the Federal Reserve's rescue authority. Our moderator today is... Ilan Mui, who is a financial reporter for the Washington Post, whose territory includes uh, the Federal Reserve. Ilan will be introducing the rest of our distinguished panel uh, to you, Uh, so without further ado, I will pass the floor on to her. Thank you so
1: much, George, for the introduction, and thank you to Cato for pulling together this very important discussion today. Um, I have with me here to talk about reforming the Fed's emergency lending powers. We have Mara Calabria, he is here from at Cato, um, and he is also a former top economic aide to uh, Richard Shelby. We have also Marcus Stanley, he is the policy director for Americans for Financial Reform. Um, and we are also joined by Philip Swagel, he is the former assistant secretary for economic policy at Treasury, and he's now at the University of Maryland. You can read their full bios um, in your packet as well. So thank you guys so much for being here um, and talking about this issue with us. Um, So we are again discussing the Fed's emergency lending powers, and so I think it would be helpful to start the discussion by actually understanding what exactly those powers are and how they work, especially during the financial crisis. Phil, I'd like to start with you, if that's okay, because you were at Treasury during sort of the dark days, right there in the trenches, while the Fed was putting um, some of these powers into play. Can you tell us how they worked?
2: Okay, sure, sure. I mean, what I joke to my students is that um, uh, the Fed can do anything as long as it's well collateralized. So if, uh, if five governors say it's okay, you know, Mark and I can wheel our bicycles up to 20th and C Street and get a, collateral, a loan collateralized by our, <laughs> our bicycles. So during the during the crisis, obviously, the Fed didn't uh, do bike loans, but um, they did do floor plan loans for autos. They, um, say, they supported uh, transactions involving individual institutions, so think Bear Stearns and AIG, and then they, um, they did collateralized lending uh, to support markets, right, in addition to the traditional discount window uh, sort of lending. So the markets, think of um, commercial paper, uh, money market mutual funds, and then ultimately the TALF, which was the um, securitized lending. Um, and of course this has been changed since the, uh, since the crisis. So think of like AIG, right? There's a Fed loan just to AIG. The Fed said it was well collateralized. You know, since then there's a paper by um, uh, Robert McDonald from uh, Northwestern and a, and a co-author at the Chicago Fed that says that no, actually it looks like AIG was insolvent, which is kind of interesting. Um, and Hester Pierce has more on this also. But today, post Dodd-Frank, the Fed could still do that. They just say, look, any life insurance company that wants these terms, very onerous, subject to court challenge, any of you can have this, you know, this loan, um, and of course, only AIG would take it.
1: So Phil, basically what you're saying here is that the Fed's emergency lending powers was basically its ability to bail out a big institution that might be failing. Is that that, that essentially
2: right? Right. I I wouldn't use the word bailout, uh, although I understand other people would use it. Um, That's
1: the hashtag for this event. Yeah, exactly. Cato Fed bailout. So, uh, (laughs) um, yeah,
2: to support uh, an institution, of course, subject right to the rules. It has to be um, well, you know, collateralized to the Fed's satisfaction, um, and they have now they have to get permission from the Treasury Secretary, which is appropriate. Um, and I think in some sense was done before, you know, informally in any case.
1: So, Marcus, I'd like to talk to you next um, about exactly how some of those powers were changed um, during within the Dodd-Frank Act, which was the big sweeping financial reform act that uh, that was put into place in 2010. How did the Fed's powers change after Dodd-Frank?
3: Well, I think the, the first thing to think about is that the, the Fed's use of these emergency lending powers during the crisis was... Absolutely unprecedented. The Fed had really not appealed to thirteen three. I think it had it. It ha- actually hadn't used thirteen three since it was passed in the nineteen. And thirteen three
1: is another name for right, the Right, another Fed's for, for
3: that authority to lend to non-banks. Actually,
2: I can, I, just to interrupt, I can say there is one time there's a meeting with the secretary when he said, "When was the last time the Fed lent to a broker-dealer?" And the answer was during the Great Depression. And He uh-huh. said, oh, that's a great headline. First time since the Great Depression. So.
3: So, so, th- so this was absolutely unprecedented. Not only did the Fed use these powers, which it hadn't used before, but it used them on a scale of tens of trillions of dollars. Um, and I think that a lot of the public attention went to TARP, which, of course, was $750 billion in capital injections. But I think that people within Congress who were, who were following it more closely and people within the public who were following it more closely, because there was coverage of this, understood that, uh, at least in terms of the, the dollar volume, you know, loans are different than capital injections, but at least in terms of the dollar volume, this emergency lending absolutely dwarfed TARP as an intervention in the uh, the economy. So, uh, th- there was a feeling that, that this has to be addressed somehow, and what, what happened is, that we, uh, we had Section 1101 in the Dodd-Frank Act, which uh, put some new limitations on 13.3 uh, in saying that the Fed could only lend to solvent entities uh, in a broad-based program. So the idea is that you don't pick out a single institution that's going to fail and rescue that institution. You give broad-based supports to market, support to markets which only solvent entities can take advantage of. And I would make two points about that. First, people often say, "Oh, this is a great narrowing of uh, emergency lending authority, and this is quite dangerous." Uh, we unfortunately, our representative of the establishment uh, on this panel is Phil Swagel, who is a very balanced—I uh, I, think—a very balanced person who can see both sides. But there are plenty of people at the Fed who would say that. Even that limitation at Section 1101 is, you know, very dangerous to our discretion to, uh, you know, perform rescue operations. Uh, I would say that 1101 actually, in some sense, ratified the Fed's emergency lending power somewhat because mm-hmm. you have this this element that was basically lying dormant that the Fed hadn't used. The Fed uses it at an unprecedented scale, and then Congress says, "Well, okay, it's all right if you use it; just do it for solvent entities on a broad-based." Level, and the other point I would make is that 1101, even though in principle this you, you know lend to solvent entities in a broad-based program is a good principle, uh, there were some loopholes that were snuck into 1101. I think there were, there was a lot of involvement by Fed by Fed staffers in the drafting of this, and the the two may two major loopholes I would point to is when they said only lend to solvent entities, they say solvency for the purposes of the of this subparagraph, solvency, uh, an entity shall be insolvent if it is currently in a bankruptcy proceeding. So you have kind of this, they didn't quite say that you're solvent unless you're currently in bankruptcy, but they left the door open to this very, very flimsy definition of solvency that says, unless you're currently in a bankruptcy proceeding, you're solvent, which is not the normal definition of solvency at all. And that was a, a major loophole that went in there. Um, and the second loophole is they didn't define broad-based. So uh, if, you, if you offer a, a, a program to, say, two entities, one of which you know won't take advantage, the other of which you know will take advantage, that could potentially qualify as broad-based. And when the Fed did its rule implementing these new limitations, We will get to this more, but it took full advantage of those loopholes, full advantage. And I think that's why we're really here today, and that's why you're going to hear these senators discuss this.
1: So, Marcus, what I'm hearing you saying is that the Dodd-Frank Act didn't go far enough in terms of constraining the Fed's Emergency lending powers, um, Mark Calabria. I believe we were talking earlier. You said you don't think it went far enough because it didn't eliminate the Fed's emergency <laughs> lending powers altogether. Should they have this ability at all?
4: Well, the, to bail out institutions. The, 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 so the short answer to that that is no. But let me let me sort of explain why. But first, emphasize what Marcus was touching upon, which is, you know, to me, what's in Dodd Frank is largely cosmetic. Uh, and what the Fed proposed about 20 months ago is really just a reiteration of what the statute says. And so, so what did the
1: Fed propose?
4: So the Fed, it's, it's almost as if they simply copied the statutory language and proposed that as a rule. Um, so there really were no tight definitions of what solvency is. There's no tight definitions of what's broad-based. Uh, and so, you, in my opinion, everything that was done in 2008, 2009, 2010 could be done under the language of which isn't Dodd-Frank. So to me, I do think it needs to be tightened up Um, I would certainly go as far personally of getting rid of 13.3, which, um, you know, since I know we're going to continue to use that term, that is the third paragraph of Section 13 of the Federal Reserve Act, uh, which is one of the many authorities that allows assistance. It's also important to keep in mind there are other authorities. Uh, I'm not sure they've ever used, for instance, um, 1313, but that allows you to lend to anybody as long as they bring you treasuries or agencies. So there's other lending authorities, and of course there's the well-known discount window that works for banks, and most of what we're talking about in terms of 1313 is non-bank lending. But let me get to, you know, despite the fact that none of what's on the table in terms of legislation is a discussion about ending a lender of last resort, I think it's useful to step back and say, do we need a lender of last resort? Um, Ian, so one of the things you always hear is, well, if we don't have this lender of last resort, we risk another Great Depression. Well, one of the silver linings about the painfulness of the Great Depression is you had a variety of institutional structures at that time you can compare. And so for instance, one very smart professor who's currently at Harvard, Richard Grossman, went back and did this. And what did he find? Countries without lenders of last resort actually did better than countries with lenders of last resort during the Great Depression. So at least the one test of we have uh, is that It's not as if it saves you from great depressions. And of course, very careful work that he did a few years ago in Journal of Economic History that controls for all these things. Um, but we also have, I mean, certainly you can argue Great Depression a long time ago, different economy, different banking industry, how is that relevant today? And that's a, and that's a fair question. But we can look more recently. To me, uh, despite the fact that we still debate why Japan is in the decades-long mess it's in, you know, I'm of the belief that the lender of last resort functions there kept alive what we call zombie, basically insolvent banks, insolvent companies, that really was a drag on the economy and kept them into, you know, to me, a very soft economy, whereas if they had just you know, bit the bullet, resolved those institutions and moved on, I think they would have done a lot better. And I think we've done some of that as well in, with our response to <coughs> the crisis. So to me, a lot of what the 13.3 response was about in terms of the 14 different, I think, 14 different programs that were done under 13.3 were essentially about, in my opinion, putting a floor under asset prices. So that essentially the banks did not have to recognize the prices that are out there. Uh, and for me, fundamentally, if you move from a situation where the housing market is booming, therefore we think mortgage-backed securities are worth X, and then the housing market's no longer booming and we think mortgage-backed securities are worth Y, I think you need to move to that new equilibrium sooner rather than later. And I understand that you can have fire sales and you can have you know, some difficulties and insolvencies that come by that, but to me, to, we used these 13-3 programs in a way to try to delay what, to my opinion, was an inevitable adjustment in the marketplace. Uh, And let me lastly say, one of my concerns with it is this mixing of having monetary authority responsibilities, regulatory responsibilities, and I'll give two quick examples. So, you know, the poster child for hiding things off of your balance sheet was Citibank. What's not as well understood is Citibank had to go to the New York Fed and get explicit permission to do this. And so the New York Fed was well aware of these off-balance sheet entities that Citibank had created. And so, of course, when all of that blew up and Citibank didn't have the capital to support those entities when it had to come back on its balance sheet, wow, lo and behold, same time New York Fed creates these facilities <laughs> that will buy these assets. It looked really well for Citibank in that instance. Another example, of course, is despite the, the attention to AIG, you know, JP Morgan goes to the New York Fed and says, can we use credit default swap some AIG to lower our capital? New York Fed says, "Well, sounds great. That's brilliant. Why don't you do it? And so my point being is that these facilities have essentially allowed the New York Fed, in particular, but also their system as itself, to cover up its own regulatory failings in a way that we've not really had a broad-based public discussion about the regulatory failings of the Federal Reserve, and they've ended up coming out of Dodd-Frank with even more power, despite what, in my opinion, were some pretty bad failings. So I worry that... These authorities can be too easily used to tap public money to cover up by of mistakes, and therefore those mistakes do not get examined, and, and unfortunately, probably get repeated.
1: So I think you I think you bring up a good point, and which is a fundamental assumption we've made in our discussion so far. Um, which is, you know, that there is something wrong with the Fed having these emergency lending powers or something wrong with the scope of the Fed's emergency lending powers. I'd like you guys both to articulate, um, you know, is there something wrong with the way the Fed used the powers during the crisis and, you know, what else should the Fed be using if, if, not, if not the ability to save institutions that could have systemic, uh, systemic problems if they do fail?
3: Uh, yeah, please go ahead. I, I want to kind of disagree with that somewhat and also kind of get some space between between me and some of the things Mark
1: was saying. <laughs> there, there was, again, That's there was why I'm sitting in work. the middle. <laughs> <laughs>
3: the, the, the first part of what Mark... There were, there were two basic things Mark was saying, what, one of which I don't agree with so much and the other which I do agree with. The, the thing that I do agree with is that there the use of these emergency lending powers in the crisis was very destructive and delayed necessary... Um, Uh, adjustment on the part of both markets and and the real economy. And I'll I'll come back to that. The, the, The part that I would disagree with somewhat, I think, is the questioning of whether the Fed needs emergency lending powers at all. And I think that it's actually sort of harmful for this debate when people cast it as no emergency lending powers versus unlimited emergency lending powers. I think that then allows... Uh, people who are defenders of the status quo to kind of marginalize any calls for change. I think that in concept, what Dodd-Frank did, in concept, what Dodd-Frank called for and what's clearly the spirit of Section 1101 is to say you can only lend to solvent entities in a broad-based program makes a lot of sense. And I think that if you did the solvent entities uh, requirement correctly, it would get at this zombie bank issue, which I think is the heart of what Mark is is driving at. Uh, The the problem is these particular loopholes that that were put in. So it's not that I I think that Dodd-Frank didn't go far enough. I think that it was poorly drafted, and there were these loopholes put in, and now we've seen the Fed walk through these sort of gaping, almost back doors out of the rule, and basically put in a proposed rule that, as Mark said, really doesn't limit their discretion at all. So I think we need sensibly limited emergency lending powers that work to restrict the harmful, the potentially harmful impact of emergency lending in delaying market adjustment, creating moral hazard, and the use by regulatory insiders of emergency lending to cover up their own mistakes, which I also think Mark was correctly pointing
1: to. Mark, I just want to interrupt you for one second and let you know that we are going to be taking questions from the audience. You guys can ask um, whatever you would like of our distinguished panel here. Um, do please wait to be called on. There are microphones, I think, um, I just, being passed I, I around.
2: Just, okay, I just had a few. Yes, I'm going to yeah, yeah. respond right yeah, after. Yeah, yeah. There
1: are microphones will be passed around, so come up with your question. Think about what you want to ask, and in the meantime, we will hear from Phil responding okay to you this
2: comment as well. Yeah, no, no, no. it's... Um, I, I, and like Marcus said, I'm sort of a little bit in the middle here, and, and I think he, he nailed it when he said there's some people who think that the restrictions in, in Dodd-Frank already were really, you know, too much, and, I you know, I, look, I just don't agree with that. But I, I do see a failed intervention, or a failed non-intervention, right, and that's the, um, you know, the, the blunder uh, with, uh, with WAMU, right, that the... So the FDIC... You know, did a particular type of intervention that you know in the view of basically everyone in the world except for the FDIC um, uh, you know, exacerbated the crisis and led and so the FDIC to, to turn on a dime and, and then you know, uh, invoke, invoke its systemic risk exception for the first time uh, in, you know in, in their history uh, with Wakovia so we see the so is you know what, what happens when we don't have that authority and so it's a tough uh, it's really tough um, you know, I think what we need is good judgment, and that you know, since we were, I think we were all fortunate um, that you know Ben Bernanke, who was the chair of the Fed, and you know, I'd say the same thing like Janet Yellen. I would I'd trust her in the same uh, the same way, uh, you know, in, in this sort of crisis response. Um, you know, even where I might disagree with some of the monetary or other regulatory decisions. Um, and, and the kinds of things the Fed did well, uh, of course, the, the example I'm going to give is one actually that was designed at the Treasury. So uh, but it was implemented <laughs> by the Fed. not biased at
1: all. Yeah, not <laughs> biased at all,
2: right? I don't have any. Um, so and that's the TALF, right? The securitization program, which was designed in a really clever way, right? It, um, it, it basically was you know, useful and supported um, uh, credit markets when it was needed, when credit markets were strained, and then it naturally disappeared because of the penalty rate. So that's the good. And of course, the bad is it allocated credit, right? I mean, this got a, you know, access to health and that didn't. And that's just inevitable. And I, I would just want the people at the Fed to have the good judgment to, um, to balance those, uh, those two things. And my last comment is here I'll disagree and maybe uh, be a little provocative, but it's okay. They're, 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 these guys will be fine with it. Um, I, I suspect. You know that uh, not suspect. My view of the the Vitter-Warren bill is it it really it it cripples 133, right? So my view is that what's in Dodd-Frank doesn't cripple 133. The reasonable restrictions, especially in return for getting Title II of Dodd-Frank. But I think you know really the Vitter-Warren bill is a no big banks bill, which you know is a reasonable you know, position for the two authors to hold, right? I mean, that's, that is their position, no big thanks. And let's just call it, you know, call it that. So, okay, I told you I'd be uh, provocative and they can disagree. <laughs> so,
1: Let's get a question from the audience, and I think we have some uh, some responses up here as well. Is there someone with the mic? There should be. Who has uh, the mic? Okay. Cool.
4: Do you,
5: ahead, you want to run sorry. the
1: mic? Uh,
5: My name is Justin Friedman, and I was a, a congressional aide that worked on Dodd-Frank. And... Uh, There is a view held by many of us that the Fed, often with the cooperation of Treasury and other agencies, invoked 13.3 to provide support in ways that the government otherwise didn't have the right authority to do so. So one of the other things that Dodd-Frank does that we haven't really talked about today is sets up a process for unwinding an insolvent institution. And so now that we have that process in place and it's housed at the FDIC, mm-hmm. should we be so concerned about use or perhaps abuse of thirteen mm-hmm. three, given that we now have put in place a process to actually address these situations and we don't have to go to some Depression-era, you know, mm-hmm. 70-year-old authority to, to cobble something together? Marcus? Yeah, well, uh, two, two things. Well, one, I would say that
3: uh, that Title II, which is the Resolution Authority, absolutely, I think, should lead to a sea change in how we think about emergency lending. Mm-hmm. Because Title II, uh, Resolution Authority, includes a liquidity line from the Treasury, which is can itself be thought of as a way to support markets and a form of emergency lending, but it's a form of emergency lending that requires the resolution and liquidation of a failed bank and the firing of the executives who are responsible for it. So that's the path and direction we, we should be going in. And I think it's very, very telling that the Fed's 13.3 proposed rule didn't mention resolution authority once. It made not one mention of the resolution authority. So there was, there was no change that was made. And the, the second thing, I just want to respond to the uh, typically, we get the, the provocative claim made right before we go to the uh, the audience <laughs> questions. It's a cliffhanger. But the, the, the claim that Warren Vitter uh, you know cripples 133. Um, I I really disagree with that. I think Warren Vitter is a, a very sensible uh, piece of legislation that's very workable and it, it doesn't cripple 133. What it does is it is it makes the principles in Dodd Frank real and genuinely limits the Fed discretion. And I think that the Fed has been used to unlimited discretion for so long that anything that genuinely limits their discretion, you know, to them, they feel crippled when when that <laughs> happens. So, uh, so what does what, what Warren Vitter do? It basically says Look, if you're going to claim that somebody is solvent, you have to document that the value of their assets is greater than the value of their liabilities with suitable correction for illiquid markets. Well, that's the minimum you should do to say that somebody is solvent. The value of assets should be greater than the value of liabilities, and you should have some proof for that. You know, how is that unreasonable? It says you should lend at 500 basis points over the Treasury level. W- well, what's 500 basis points over the Treasury level? Uh, that's actually lower than the credit spread for investment-grade bonds during the crisis. The lowest investment-grade bonds during the crisis were, were at 800 basis points over the, the Treasury level. So that's actually a lower spread than we saw in the crisis. So that's pretty mild penalty rate. Uh, and it says that you've got to help at least five entities so that broad-based uh, can't be you know one plus somebody else. It's got to at least be... A couple of entities, and it also gives you a route out of this. If you want to break any of these rules, you can, but Congress needs to approve it. So, you know, these are very, very sensible limitations to me. And the fact that, you know, I know that once this legislation was introduced, the very highest level people at the Fed the next day were on the phone to people in Congress because they were so scared by this. And I think that this is very unfortunate uh, that the Fed should view something like this as so radical. And if the Fed really wants to head off this kind of legislation, I think they should do a stronger rule, which they have the capacity to do. They should respond to the criticisms that were made of their overly lax proposal.
4: If I can make a, a real quick point, because so the best argument to me, you know, in favor of broad discretion for 13.3, you know, and I'll say you'll find it in Tim Geithner's book, and he's very clear about, you know, I call it the sort of stuff happens <laughs> theory. And again, stuff does happen, but it's kind of like you live on the beach, there's a hurricane, there's a flood, hurricanes happen, you can't do anything about them, they come up every now and then. And then, so therefore, you need the ability to go bail out, in this case, literally. Um, Or you just don't live on the beach. So now it's getting to the (laughs) other side of it. So my concern, the question then becomes, well, if you have this lender of last resort function, because the stuff happens theory sort of assumes that nothing else changes, you know, stuff happens, you know, nobody does any response to that, whereas stuff happens like we provide flood insurance or lots of people to decide to live in floodplains. You know, and again, it's the same thing in that, does the lender of last resort function change the behavior of the industry? Now, I think that the argument about, to me, overwhelmingly, the evidence is the discount window and the lender of last resort function of the Fed has resulted in a more highly leveraged banking industry. I mean, I, I think that that's overwhelmingly the evidence. And so the question would be, if we feel like this is not gonna get used again until another quote-unquote Great Depression or in 80 years or so, well that's one thing. But if we have something where the expectation starts to be that non-bank assistance will become a regular thing, everything, there's a hiccup, then what's gonna happen is non-banks are gonna adjust to that. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna adjust that by becoming more highly leveraged, they're gonna be adjusted by that, by making decisions that make themselves more illiquid. So again, to me, the really question is about is the stuff-just-happens theory the overwhelming view of the world, or is the, this, um, you know, creates distortions where people make decisions that leave them worth off? And I should end with saying, I think both of these have a grain of truth, mm-hmm. but again, it's the balance between the two.
1: Let's take another question uh, did, from the I, audience. I, I, just a... To- Like one
2: sentence is, I mean, in some sense, you know, does it cripple 13.3? Well, of course not, because Congress can just pass TARP 2, and then they can use their power as well. You know, having been through TARP 1, I don't think TARP 2 is going to be enacted. So effectively, it feels like it cripples.
1: Okay, um, let's go in the back, uh, the guy with the paper.
4: One way to to get noticed.
1: Oh, so sorry. In the back, (laughs) far back, far back. Thank you. Please Uh, uh, say your name and your affiliation.
6: I'll be quick. Uh, I'm Robert Sherrider, President of International Investor. Uh, Let's just back up to one fundamental question. You know, one of the reasons this whole topic hasn't resonated with the American people even more than it has
3: been registered is that someone mentioned off the balance sheet. Um, This is also the Fed's doings are off the balance sheet of the U.S. budget as well. We're going to hear the CBO director tomorrow talk about that. So fundamental question. Who owes what to who when all this money has been generated on behalf of the banks? Where (laughs) exactly does this money come from?
4: Maybe the best way to say it, so keep in mind, after the Fed pays its operating expenses, which are, in my opinion, quite considerable if you're looking at- And the at, CFPBs. At, and the CFPBs and the 13 different art museums they have and all that sort of stuff, the excess goes back to the Treasury to basically be used for Congress for other purposes. So whether there's a you know, profit, if you want to use that word, I wouldn't necessarily, or a loss, that does ultimately flow back to um, the public and whether they're going to have to make up for it in another form or not. Mm-hmm.
6: Well,
3: I, I do think that th- this is a very complex question you've raised, as you know. Um, and I think fundamentally what's going on here is is the use of the money creation power with a fiat currency. and the 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 question of the distributional impacts of of money creation is is a very, Complex one. Now, I think there's sort of a crude vision of monetary money creation, which is whenever the Fed uses its money creation powers, you know, we get runaway inflation. I I don't agree with that at all. I don't think we've we've seen inflation. I think we've seen the propping up of asset prices, which is a very different thing. And we've seen that 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 money pooled up at Wall Street. It was used. uh, the, The Fed used its emergency lending powers to expand its balance sheet, which effectively created money. It's going to make interest rate lift off a little more technically difficult for the Fed, so that's one impact. But it it propped up asset prices on Wall Street, and I think one difference: Americans' financial reform is not a libertarian organization. We are not the Cato Institute. Uh, we <laughs> do on, believe that it, it is possible for to use the powers of government to Im- improve people's lives. Uh, but we want, we want the powers of government to be used to improve the lives of, of regular people and not people who are insiders to either the, the government or to the upper reaches of the financial system. And I think that the way the monetary creation power was used in, in this case to benefit Wall Street actually did, did not help the real economy. It didn't help the people who were really being injured. Uh, by the, the financial crisis. It permitted the people in Wall Street to kind of delay or or potentially, you know, eliminate their day of reckoning and their writing down of these assets. So, for example, I think keeping these zombie banks alive made it more difficult to do mortgage write-downs, which is something that we favored, reducing uh, the, the value of mortgage loans to something more realistically in line with the value of, of houses. And that was made more difficult, I think, because there were certain insiders who, who wanted to help these these zombie banks. And I think that that was delayed. So something like the TALF, I actually agree with Phil on something like the TALF. The TALF got that money directly out into the real economy, much more directly out into the real economy to support Uh, smaller businesses to support people outside of the financial sector. And the financial sector was just used, I think, as a conduit to that. Whereas I think a lot of the other emergency lending powers were about keeping the the banks alive. Uh, And that was a problem.
1: Bill, doesn't the Fed argue, though, that all of the lending that it did under 13.3 has been paid back?
3: Right, I mean, of
2: course, they they do, that's, you know, I don't think they would, I'm not speaking for the Fed, but I I don't think they would say, and therefore, you know, sort of QED. (laughs) They say, look, you know, there's a good thing, it shows that on the whole, our lending was, was well collateralized. But I suspect, and, you know, look, Chairman Bernanke's book will come out, I think, next month. Um, I suspect he's going to make the argument that we've heard before is that he was acting on behalf of the nation. He wasn't, you know, bailing out banks to help rich people. In, in, you know, in the same way that Janet Yellen hasn't kept interest rates low to boost asset prices to help rich people. Now, it happens that it's been that way and it's exacerbated inequality, which is so puzzling that, you know, all these protesters at Jackson Hole saying more inequality, more inequality. But uh, anyway, I think he would he would make the argument that, you know, he's done this on behalf of the nation. And, and ultimately, that's why I said, we have to just trust the, ju- you know, get good people with good judgment. And, you know, like I said, we've been fortunate to, to have those people.
1: All right, question from the right, anyone up here? All right, I'll we'll move to the front.
4: <laughs> As the question is lined up, I will say, you know, one of the things I experienced when I was on the banking committee during the crisis was a number of people from hedge funds and private equity coming through my door in the hill saying, I will buy this stuff, get it out there. Mm -hmm. And obviously, they weren't gonna pay the price the banks wanted, but they were gonna pay a price. And it gets Mm -hmm. to Marcus's point, which is if you buy mortgages at 40 cents on the dollar, you have a lot of room to modify them. And you (laughs) saw that with this. And so I do think it was a mistake to try to keep these uh, in the bank balance sheets. Uh,
7: My name is Chris Inglis. I'm a self-employed CPA. Mm -hmm. Um, I read some articles that the Bank of Japan and the Central Bank in China they actually uh, buy ETFs of stocks in order to prop up their stock markets. Um, Our Federal Reserve does not have that power and there's no proof that they're not doing that, right? So particularly the the Bank of Japan,
4: who is the sort of pioneer of quantitative easing, Mm -hmm. has bought almost everything under the sun and has a much broader set of authorities the Fed does have some, of the, they cannot buy REITs and equities, and of course, we just had a court say in the AIG case that they can't buy equity. Um, but there's a broad, I mean, they can buy treasuries, they can buy agencies, uh, they can even buy munis, and it's been, I think, since the 80s, since they did any muni purchases. So there's a broader range in what they've been engaged in, um, but they certainly don't have the flexibility that, say, the Bank of Japan has. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, another question from the audience, let's go to, Another paper, all the way in the back, and glasses. <laughs> thank,
2: and d- Thanks for the excellent questions.
7: They're really, uh, really yes. good. Hi, um, uh, my name is Patrick Bond, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> uh, it's, it's important to kind of distinguish the Fed's authority for solvency versus liquidity. Mm-hmm. And what amazes me is you can sit there and say, well, these things happen. I'm an engineer. Mm -hmm. Nothing ever happens to an engineer. This is all environmental design. Mm -hmm. You don't want a house destroyed on the hurricane by a beach. Mm -hmm. You have it designed up on pillars, four, six, eight feet up, whatever the predictable worst-case storm is. That's called regulation. Mm -hmm. And you're missing out that there is forward regulation for safety, for life management, for protection of assets and capital. What, what's the question? That what's we as question? engineers have to com- combine to and hold to that no banker seems to ever hold to. And it would seem that if you had regulations that said, hey, you come to the lender of last resort, we're going to tell you how you run your bank. You know, much like they did to GM, but not well. ask a question. Ask a question. Why not say when you come to the discount window, there are regs that cut in on you yeah that's uh, great
1: now the Warren Vitter bill does do some of that right well
3: i think I think that for, first of all, I think that's the idea behind resolution authority that if you're genuinely insolvent, there's going to be a liquidity line that helps resolve you and support the markets, but we are going to break up, restructure your company, and fire the management and that that's I think precisely why you know people are not going to be seeking out and wanting to go into into resolution authority. And just in terms of the engineering here, we do have a whole set of regulations on banks meant to keep them solvent. A lot of them put in Dodd-Frank. Um, but then if we allow sort of a back door, we say, okay, stay solvent by observing all these capital regulations and so on and so forth. But then we can just lend to you and help you even if you're insolvent. You know, That's going to undercut the application of those regulations. So that's why I think Warren Vitter is so important in saying, we're going to have a real solvency requirement. We're going to say that your assets actually have to be worth more than your liabilities in some documentable sense, adjusted for current liquidity. And I don't think that cripples Emergency lending at all,
1: Phil. To, I see you writing furiously. So I'll let you have the last word because we are just about out of time.
3: Okay, sure, sure. No, I thought it was good. It's a, um, the part about
2: the the boundary between solvency and liquidity is really going to the heart of the question. It's really excellent insight. That it's you know, look, if if we could each have access to the discount window forever, I'll be, we are way solvent, right? You give us enough time, with <laughs> yeah. that carry trade, and we're solvent. Um, so uh, I, I, you know, and that's the that's the, the tough judgment. Um, you know, I mentioned the AG already. I just, I just, I. Just, Scribbling furiously about City, um, that uh, you know what, what happened with City, right? In, in the end, the shareholders of City took a massive dilution, right? But the bondholders got got off, and you know was that appropriate? I, I suspect with Title II, it wouldn't happen, but of course we don't uh, we don't know. But that's to me, that's the really tough question: is solvency versus liquidity? I I, I don't have the answer, but you know that's to me, that's the hard question.
1: Philip Swegel, now at the University of Maryland, Marcus Stanley, Policy Director for Americans for Financial Reform, and Mark Calab- Calabria, Calabria from Cato. Thank you guys all so much for being here today.
4: We're take, um, <laughs> and, 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 and thank you, for Elon, for being such a great moderator. And if you're not reading her work, you absolutely should be. We're going to take just a few minutes to turn over to Stage and welcome the senators. So please don't go anywhere, or come back quickly if you do. <laughs> I think we are all miked and ready to go. And and first, let me say uh, I really appreciate it. I know the the schedule of a senator is extremely busy. Uh, So I very much appreciate both of you taking the time to come over here. And I I think this is the first time we've had either one of you at Cato, so I hope it's not the last and certainly want to welcome. And I certainly should thank my friends at American Financial Reform for also making this this possible today as a joint effort. Um, So we're going to talk about the Federal Reserve today. Uh, I think one of the things that really sort of shook me and shook much of the public during 2008, 2009, were all these things happening that none of us really knew could happen? And every day it was something new. uh, And I think the public was used to seeing the Fed in this monetary role and said, wow, I didn't know they could do that. Um, And so the reaction, of course, in Dodd-Frank's Section 1101 was to say, let's tighten this up. Let's make sure that this is targeted toward everybody, not one off. Let's make sure it's solvent, that we aren't bailing out firms, we're just helping those that have a little bump in the road, Um, and of course about 20 months ago the Federal Reserve proposed a rule, which in my opinion was largely just re-restating the statute, Uh, and so I'd like to start the conversation with, uh, you know, is this something that the Fed can do on their own? Uh, If, let's hope that the Fed was listening now, and if there was something you could say to them in terms of when we see a final rule, you know, what should it look like?
0: David, do you wanna start? Sure. Well, first of all,
6: let me back up a little bit and say that I think the fact that we're here together, working together on this, illustrates how broad and legitimate the concern across America is with too big to fail. And the fact that it is unfortunately alive and well, and if another crisis happened, uh, we're convinced we'd see it again, all over again, same old, same old. And I think the American public is really concerned about that left, right, and middle. I think it is a very broad-based concern. And the fact that we're sort of the political odd couple, I don't know if I'm Felix or Oscar, but (laughs) working on this, um, I I think it proves how deep and legitimate and broad-based that concern is. So I just wanted to say that up front. Uh, Secondly, could the Fed uh, fix this on its own? Uh, Certainly. Uh, Have they? Absolutely not. And it's very clear, as you suggested, with everything they have put out, they absolutely want to preserve maximum flexibility, their ability to really do whatever they want, particularly in a crisis. And that, look, I'm not going to say that's some um, evidence of uh, some evil hidden agenda. That's sort of the natural impulse for an agency, to to have as many tools in the toolbox as possible to not restrict themselves, uh, maximum flexibility. I just don't think that is good, because if it happens again, I think we would be assured of same old, same old, bailing out insolvent institutions, very focused bailouts, not at all broad-based. And so that's why Elizabeth and I think this legislation which would preclude that is required.
0: So uh, obviously, I agree with David on this. I, I think he's exactly right. This is about too big to fail, uh, and about what it means to the American people. It's about what it means to this economy, and trying to find a way to back up from that. It was all created in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. We know about TARP. There was a lot of focus on seven hundred billion. You know, try. Googling 700 billion and see how many people were talking about TARP. But what a lot fewer people were talking about was how the Fed was shoveling money out the back door in a very quiet way to support, not the financial system overall, but to support very targeted financial institutions. Nine trillion dollars, your money, nine trillion tax dollars, went out the door to just three financial institutions, and it stayed there on average for about 22 months that this money went out. And yes, it was loan money, but at an interest rate that I guarantee (laughs) those three financial institutions couldn't get anywhere in the world except from the Federal Reserve. So what we're talking about, our bill actually has a real history to it in a sense. It has a it has a kind of pedigree to it. So the first part is too big to fail. The second part is the response in Dodd-Frank. And so in Dodd-Frank, Congress came together, It's before I was there, but Congress came together and they said, look, if the Fed is gonna lend any money in the future in times of distress, we wanna know that it is a system-wide problem, not just that one or two financial institutions has a specific problem, but that it's, it's system-wide and that the problem the financial institution has is not a problem of insolvency, that is, they have made some terrible bets in the market and they're now upside down, but that the problem they've got is one of liquidity because the market itself is freezing up. And so Congress, I think quite reasonably, and Dodd-Frank said those are, in effect, the goals, and told the Fed to implement that. The Fed, as you rightly say, proposed a rule that I kind of read that rule to say, (laughs) not really, Um, because the Fed said, oh, system-wide facility, okay, we probably can't say one. Congress would probably get really (laughs) aggravated about that. So they said two, two counts as system-wide, that's it. So that's all they've got to show is that you've got two financial institutions that are in here asking for money, in effect, at the same time. And the second part of it, as, as they're going through the, the how system-wide is this, then the next question is, is this a financial institution that's insolvent? And i got to tell you here, the Fed says, oh, we know how to measure insolvent if they haven't yet filed for bankruptcy. <laughs> now, I want you to just to think about that for a minute, because the way I read that is they said what we're going to do is we're going to set up a little cart right in front of the bankruptcy courthouse and any large financial institution that has prepared the paper decision is headed to the courthouse will just intercept and say, would you like a trillion dollars from us instead? Uh, Because you will qualify because you have not yet climbed the steps and dropped the piece of paper that files for bankruptcy. Let's face it, That is both not what Congress intended in Dodd-Frank, but it is also not what we need in order to try to beat back the too-big-to-fail problem. So what Senator Vitter and I have proposed is just to go back over those three parts. And we talk about system-wide, and we say we didn't think we'd have to do this by statute, but come on, guys. Five institutions, You know, let's at least get the number up that we think we've got multiple institutions here. Insolvency, you guys gotta get out there and certify that this is not an insolvent financial institution that's getting this money. At least you're gonna have to put your name behind it. And the third part, by the way, is this should be at a penalty rate of interest. So it should be five points above what the T-bill is. The point here is not to give you below market rates so that we can subsidize you. The point is to say, if you're having to turn to the Fed for help in a crisis, then the Fed in that sense should be like other market lenders. Yeah, they'll be there as lender of last resort, but you're gonna have to pay something extra for it and your shareholders are gonna have to pay something extra for it. We still give the Fed the capacity to move in, but we feel like we've tried to at least put some curbs on this so that we can get too big to fail under better control.
4: I think that's an incredibly important aspect in reminding people that markets don't work without fair. I was just trying to. Remember, I, I think the Warren Buffett deal with Goldman was something like ten percent. So, yeah. so um, let's try to deal with. I mean, you know, neither one of you will be surprised that there's been some criticism. So let's try to raise a couple of what those criticisms have been. Uh, I won't name him, but a recent Federal Reserve official testified before Congress. His initials
0: are BB. <laughs> oh, no. Is that the one you're talking about? I was about? actually talking oh, I about his
4: another one who, oh, okay. who, who basically kind of who made the argument that. Um, you know, we really don't know at the time who's, who's insolvent. You know, we can't figure this out at the time. You know, forcing the Fed to decide at the time who's insolvent, you know, is difficult. And you, you kind of have to just trust our judgment. So I'd like to get a response to that argument. Really? <laughs> well, I'm trying to be generous to the, the But no, but and- I'm
0: serious. Really? These are supposed to be the supervisors and regulators who are out there looking at the books assessing the, the assets every single day. That's their job, they're, they're doing it on a regular basis. And if we're heading into a crisis, it's not like we all get up one morning and with no warning at all, whoa, it's 11.15 and suddenly there's a financial crisis upon us. It, you know that there's trouble. Trouble starts uh, 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 identifying itself. That means they should be stepping up their scrutiny of these institutions. They should be looking more carefully than they do in times when everything looks steady. The idea that they can't tell, if that is a serious statement, then I am genuinely terrified. (laughs) terrified. Um, So I'm I'm gonna assume that not really is the answer.
6: Well, I, I agree. I think they clearly have the ability to ascertain that. And I think, looking in the past, we can clearly say that most of these cases we're talking about were insolvencies yeah. and we knew it at the time
4: and, it, and it's certainly with almost any of this will be publicly traded companies that have quarterly Correct. earnings and there'll be auditors that are in and we're not talking a community bank that's only you know regulated or examined and, every other year and
6: mark if I can jump in i think the other important thing all of these curbs do is our goal is not simply to limit alternatives in a crisis our goal is to do this way ahead of time so that we do other things to head off a crisis. Uh, And I think having all of these opportunities and unlimited powers um, really um, uh, is reason for the feds and others not to do things uh, ahead of time to avoid the crisis.
4: Yeah, similarly, to me, I think the, the argument I sometimes I feel like I hear is kind of that stuff happens argument that, you know, well, you're going along, everything's fine, and then boom, some shock out of the blue, and then we've got to bail these guys out. Like, we didn't see it coming. Yeah, And so I certainly worry, and I'd be curious whether you share this concern, by having the expectation of this facility, we change the behavior of the companies themselves and their creditors and their counterparties. Right. Um, and is that a concern that we need it, to... Absolutely. You see, I
0: think that goes right to the heart of it. And this is what David and I have talked about more than once, and and that is if you advertise to the market that the Fed is here and no need for any large financial institution ever to have to go to the bankruptcy courthouse or to declare itself insolvent, but instead there will be trillions of dollars available to back up these giant institutions, I think that changes fundamentally the behavior of the big banks themselves, the behavior of those who lend them money, the behavior of those who invest in them. And I gotta say, in all three cases, not for the better. Because it encourages riskier behavior knowing that there is an option available.
6: And Mark, if stuff happens, a legitimate question is, okay, does having this facility available all over again encourage or discourage Bad stuff to happen. I think it clearly encourages it, and that's exactly what we're. Those are the dynamics we're trying to change. There's been study after study after study that says number one, too big to fail is alive and well. Number two, it gives mega banks a market advantage, a lower cost of capital, other market advantages that are simply unfair in the market and. Um, uh, onerous to competitor institutions. So, so we want to change that dynamic of stuff happening. That's also why I'm working on another piece of legislation with Sherrod Brown to um, put protections like greatly increased capital requirements for mega banks, which I think is a much more systemic approach to allow, uh, to avoiding these sorts of crises.
4: Yeah I mean I think the evidence is pretty clear that, that these have resulted in higher leverage than we would have otherwise right. and you know it's important to rely on the financial regulators but you know to me it's also important that I mean let's say I had a billion dollars to lend you if I did lend it to you I'd probably care what you did with it mm-hmm. uh, and you have that expectation and the I think I remember that Lehman had at least three offers to be bought yeah and every time they were like, no, we, we got this back. We got a better deal
0: uh, somewhere else. Mm. And the thing is, you, you've got to think about that in terms of the behavior that encourages from Lehman, from its creditors, up. but it's also what it does to a market overall. So you're a community bank, you're a small bank, you're a mid sized bank, but you're not going to be too big to fail. You're out there competing for capital, you're competing for investments, and you're competing against somebody that doesn't just have a government guarantee. They've got a government guarantee for free to back them up. And the more you keep that playing field tilted over time, the more we'll see more concentration in the industry. You just, you're driving one set of competitors out of business and advantaging another set of competitors, a set of competitors that ultimately pose far greater risk to the economy.
6: And again, there have been multiple studies that actually quantify that effect in terms of market advantage, lower cost of capital. So to me, the ultimate irony is uh, we come out of the crisis, too big to fail, et cetera. And I think mostly what we've done is created a greater disadvantage to the smaller players who essentially had nothing to do with the crisis, so we've tilted the playing field even further in favor of mega banks against smaller community banks, credit unions.
4: and I, and I agree that this is a lot of this has to be about leveling the playing field. I want to go back and, and again my reaction when I heard this criticism was really two. But but let's get it out there just to to deal with it. So one of the arguments is that a penalty rate of 5% will scare away anybody from using this facility.
0: I mean, they'll say instead, (laughs) I'm going bankrupt. I am not going to pay five extra points. Mm -hmm. Please. I mean, it's just an alternative view of human behavior that I just, I don't buy. Uh, They sold Warren Buffett at 10 points. Right uh, and or borrowed from from Buffett and it, it, the idea that you won't do it here just makes no sense to me.
4: Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, what, I mean, part of this should be
6: making the Fed actually a lender of last resort rather than a rescuer of first resort. Right, um, And that's I'd love to see the Fed to come up with a similar rule on its own. Uh, but quite frankly, even if they were to do that tomorrow, which they're not going to, you know, my concern would be that they can change that at a moment's notice in the middle of a crisis too. So I think for all sorts of reasons, it's better to have not every little detail, but broad parameters like we're talking about in statute.
4: So, you know, how do we kind of make this, you know, hold the Fed's feet to the fire? I mean, we recently had one court decision that said they lent against equity and they weren't supposed to do that. and. Nothing happened. At that's the, the problem. Right. So, so th- th- that seems to me you got to hold it. Let me you know ask a different thing. And I guess I should should say this is a an odd, a, an odd pairing is used that that's worked because uh, last night a a bill on GSE compensation that the two of you all right. passed so, right. the Senate, right. so Congratulations. <laughs> so let's hope that's the the first of many. Um, I'm curious from the conversations you have with your colleagues what the interest is uh, in the rest of the Senate in this approach. I will note there's a House companion, I think Mr. Capuano and Garrett. Mm -hmm. Um, But but what's your sense of the rest of the interest in the Senate in this? What's your sense? You've
0: been there longer. Uh,
6: I think. Look, I I think this is sort of a a competition between two factors. Number one, uh, the public's legitimate concern with too big to fail, uh, favoring mega banks, all of that, that. broad-based discussion. Number two, the insider game of these institutions quite frankly being very powerful and influ- influential. And so to me, it's a pretty simple calculus. The question is, how big is the public debate and is it getting big enough to counteract the insider special interest game? Yeah. And to me, that's the, the political fight that's going on. And so far, quite frankly, the public debate hasn't been big enough, loud enough, to overcome the special interest game. But I think it's growing in that direction.
0: I, I think I think David's right on this. I always think of it this way: that that the public interest here, there is no army of lobbyists representing them. There is no army of lawyers uh, coming in every day to talk to every Senate staff to uh, uh, to make sure that their their position is well known. And this is, for me, this is just one more version of democracy. The question is, will will the insiders control the game, those who've got the lobbyists, those who've got a lot of money on the table, but a very small insular group that, frankly, wants to enhance its profits at the expense of the public, or will we really be there to represent the people who are affected by this? both in the overall financial system and, God forbid, when we hit the next crisis.
6: And Mark, I'll give you an example. Months ago, one of the early things I did with others is to have language uh, mandating a study of the cost of too big to fail and quantifying that, which is what I alluded to. Pure study by objective analysts. Uh, The megabank lobbyists came out of the woodwork in enormous full force. I mean, I, I knew they were there. I certainly understood they would oppose it. it. Still, it stunned me to the extent that they came out in full force about doing a study and putting some numbers on it. So that's the insider game I was trying to describe. We need to overcome that with uh, broad-based public debate.
4: I, I used to often say, and so say, there's, there's, no broad, there's no narrowly defined constituency for financial stability, unfortunately. Right. And of course, one of the reasons we're here today is try to create that. Right. Um, We've
0: all got money on the table. Oh, absolutely.
4: absolutely. That's right. It, it, oh, and so, you know, when you're taking on this, this status quo establishment, you know, I find that it's incredibly important, which is one reason that, that Cato on one hand is working with Americans for Financial Reform to try to build a coalition around this. Uh, and again, you had a bill passed yesterday. You, you've got this one. Um, is this the beginning? Are there other things that you and David might be able to work out that you're already thinking about that you'd like to tell us about?
6: Yeah, I mean, we're bouncing ideas uh, off each other with each other all the time and other colleagues on the banking committee and and other colleagues in the Senate. I mentioned my ongoing effort with Sherrod Brand and others about higher capital requirements for mega banks. So we have a whole uh, spectrum and suite of ideas we're working on. Mm -hmm.
0: But it principally circles around where where David started the conversation, and that is too big to fail is not over. And it is our responsibility in the United States Senate and the United States House of Representatives to do everything we can to turn the rules in the direction of taking away the advantages that the too big to fail banks enjoy in this marketplace and in this political system. that That's our job, and we work at it as many different ways as we can, and this is one of them.
4: So part of, part of the too big to fail, while well obviously there's investor perceptions, there's activities of the bank, the other side of it seems to be me, maybe lack of courage or, or willingness on the part of the regulators to step in. And I fundamentally see the bill partly as about, you know, I think about Ulysses, Ulysses between the sirens and the rock, and, and how do you resist that?
0: Or I think of it as the two sides of the trash compactor in Star Wars. Yeah, mm-hmm. same thing. Same thing. <laughs> uh-huh.
4: so, so, so some of this is, you know, how do we, you know, essentially effectively limit the choice of regulators? I'd like to think that if I was in German Bernanke or German Jelenstein, I would probably do something different, but you don't know that you're there. Tremendous amount of pressure, nonstop calls from Wall Street, oh my God, if we don't do something. so, So how do we help strengthen their backbones?
0: You know, I am reminded that the United States Senate not only has the power to pass laws, which is what we're trying to work on, but it also has responsibility for oversight of the regulatory agencies. We both sit on the banking committee, we have regulatory oversight responsibilities, and that means bringing in these regulators and asking them the tough questions. It means in between the times that we have hearings, writing them letters, calling them, that's how we actually started, was with starting with letters right. to stay after them. Look, it's not always the headline news, but it's doing the hard homework of whether or not these agencies are doing their jobs not to represent the biggest financial institutions, but to represent the American people. And I think part of our job, and I take this very seriously, and I know that that David does too, is to hold the regulators' feet to the fire.
6: And Mark, I think part of what you're asking, at least from my perspective, I'll I'll just talk from my own perspective, because this may be a little bit more of a conservative one. Um, To to me, a big part of the problem with the Dodd-Frank response was that it was completely dependent on more regulations and more regulators versus something more systemic, something more akin to an invisible hand that doesn't depend on humans understanding and reacting in real time. I'd much rather depend on that systemic fix versus just shoving more regulators in the room and more regulations on institutions and that's where we're going with the higher capital requirement. I mean, it's sort of like after the crisis, uh, the regulators and others said, you know, we had a lot of folks focused on it and they were smart, but, but now we're gonna have a whole lot more and they're really gonna be super smart. That's, to, that's to me, not reassuring. Uh, we need something more systemic versus more humans, more regulations shoved into the equation, some of which are, Uh, counterposed to each other and inconsistent with each other.
0: So I want to pick up on David's point because I think that that we really do have two ways to think about the big financial institutions. And one is you just keep layering on regulations as he talks about. The other is what kind of structural changes you can make to try to get the market to work better in this area. And I'm just going to make a pitch here for why I want to see Glass-Steagall reimposed. If you divide the biggest financial institutions and say, look, if you want to do uh, uh, regular uh, uh, banking, commercial banking, you want to take deposits and you want to have savings accounts and checking accounts, that's great. Go do that. But it means you can engage in the high-risk trading that occurs on Wall Street. And if you want to do the high-risk trading, that's great, but you're not going to get access to, to grandma's savings market. account. These, these two are going to be separated. I just want to point out, You do something like that, not only will that bring down the size of the biggest financial institutions immediately, but the second thing it does is it cuts the need for a lot of intrusive regulation. Because you say, the institutions we are most concerned about protecting, the ones that have our savings accounts and checking accounts, are now a simpler operation, easier to see, and much easier to regulate with a simpler set of rules. And as for those who want to take more risks on Wall Street, we'll design a set of rules for them. So I think part of the problem we've got right now is that layer on layer of regulations are needed because these institutions have been permitted to get so large, so intertwined, so complex, to run business models that there are some allegations that even their own management are having a hard time understanding, right. and then throwing a bunch of regulators into that to say you stay on top of it and see how it works. I think we need structural change, right. structural change like capital, like class eagle.
6: And, Mark, let me say, I'm not on that bill yet, although I'm very interested in it, but it is,
0: <laughs> it is uh,
6: a much more systemic approach it's, like I was broadly describing. Yes, it is. Yeah, I kind of think about it either as
4: rules versus discretion or bright lines, and again, that's you know also my bridge. I think we can have a stronger and simpler, you know, regulatory system. Of course, my my little pet peeve is the capital standards, and you know every time they tell us they're going to do these risk weightings and it's going to be ever more complicated, right, right. and it's just more and more opaque. Oh,
6: right. And of course, yeah, I think right.
4: we've seen the various rounds of the Basel accords ended up with lower capital right. rather than more. So why I'm very sympathetic to a flat, simple leverage ratio that everybody can kind of read and and, and know. Um, So I do think that that, to me, is where the left-right kind of deal is. Simpler, stronger, Mm. you know, more transparent. Um, let me raise, you know, the Senate also has a very unique role in that you do nominations and, and I know you've... So I've heard. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes. And so I, and I know you've uh, expressed, you know, opinion on, on some of them and, and I also, you know, to me a good example of, you know, I look at Tom Honig going over to FDIC is somewhere where the right and left have agreed that mm-hmm. this is a guy who wants to make sure we end bailouts. Um, and is this something where the banking committee, or really other committees in general, can be more aggressive? Is this something we should be asking Federal Reserve nominees? What is your opinion on 133? Sure. What is your opinion well, on? I, 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 just, I, I think said. Elizabeth and I have
6: both <laughs> I, are already there. We're both aggressive about that. We've also championed and advanced, and actually got in the law a requirement that at least one Federal Reserve Board member now have true community bank experience. Um, you know. In the 50s and 60s, that wasn't necessary. The Federal Reserve was a true cross section mm-hmm. of a lot of different types of background, smaller banks, ag, Main Street, as well as Wall Street. There's been a very clear trend in the last 30 years in favor almost exclusively of ac- academics, and they're not evil per se, don't get me wrong. And- per se? <laughs> <laughs> I would just presume Zoom that so they're to so go from there, but <laughs> academics and big bank Wall Street types. Now, they should be able to be on the board. They shouldn't be the entire makeup of the board, and that has been the trend line, and so we started changing that with this modest requirement now that at least one member have a major community bank experience.
4: I think that's a great start. I mean, despite having a PhD in economics, I, I am... Concerned about the Fed. And again, it's not a left right thing. It's just it's become so dominated by academic economists and their models being divorced from the real world. I'll, I'll note that I could never find in Section 10 of the Federal Reserve Act the requirements for members saying anything about economists. It's, you know, <laughs> commerce and industry. Right. Right. And I do think having that broader base. So I know we're, we're, we're running low on time. So, first of all, before I give you a little bit of moment for uh, some final words, you know, I personally want to thank uh, your terrific staff, uh, Bharat Ramurti and Travis Johnson have been great to work with and really owe a lot of credit for making today happen. Um, but in our last couple of minutes, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, to reflect on where we're going, what the, what the chances of this are, and what our next step should be.
6: Well, I, I think this discussion and this trend line is really positive in a couple of ways. First of all, it's uh, people from all parts of the spectrum coming together around a very real, legitimate, common concern. We need more of that in Washington and the country, period. And I think this is a positive example of that. And number two, it's elevating the debate about something that's really important. And to me, it's simple. Uh, The the more this debate is really advanced in the public, the more these solutions are going to be successful, the more support we'll get from our colleagues. Goes back to that simple battle between a public debate and an insider's game. And the bigger and louder and more significant the public debate is, the more we're gonna win in terms of these solutions. Mm
0: -hmm. And I would just add, the issue around too big to fail is too big for politics. We can't just leave this to business as usual, that a group of insiders will influence those with power and as a result, we'll end up with a set of rules that work for the very largest financial institutions but don't work for other financial institutions, and sure as heck, don't work for the American economy and don't work for the American people. So for me, that's what this is all about. It's about trying to say it is time to end too big to fail. It is still a serious issue in this economy, and more importantly, it is a serious issue in politics. And we're trying to find a way beat it back, and to get us back to an economy that works better, not just for those at the top, but for everyone.
4: Well, I sincerely really appreciate both of you coming Thanks over well. over here today, and I promised I'd get you out on you a good amount of time. I will ask the audience to stay seated while the senators leave so they can get back to the and interrupted, and I really do appreciate uh, both of you. Thank out. you.